Good morning, all. As you take your seats, find them. They're somewhere out there. We'll be in Isaiah 63 today. And let's give this time to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thanks so much for loving us the way you do, for demonstrating your love through Jesus, for giving us a hope and a future, for filling us with your spirit. And we pray that you would uh, quicken us by your spirit today to understand your word, to lay it to heart, and to know uh, that peace that passes understanding that you've offered us through Christ. Thank you that we have these exceedingly great and precious promises and that your word does not fail. We ask, Lord, for wisdom and discernment and your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We always feel good if we if someone has our back. We use that term uh, to, to talk about someone that's loyal to us, that we know during tough times, difficulties, they're looking out for our good. They're going to be looking out for our protection. And the idea of someone having your back is that there are things in your life that you cannot control. There are things that could happen behind you you're not aware of, and to have someone looking out for you, that is a source of comfort, isn't it? To know that someone has your back, that you can go to someone in a tough time, that they will take your side, that they have your good in mind. We're not even able to deal with things that are plain and right in front of us sometimes. Um, so knowing someone has our back, we, we have some bonus courage. When it comes to God, it would be selling him terribly short to say that he has your back as if that's the only thing he does or that's the only thing he's capable to do. No, he is the one who has uh, created us. He knit us together. He made us as we are. And he has He has us and he has a future for us that's eternal. He's, he's guarding us in the spiritual and in the physical realm. He is providing for us for all of our needs. And he knows our needs even better than we do. He's not at the mercy of anyone his, his gaze is not limited. He sees everything. I like what David wrote in Psalm 139, 1 through 5. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. It's like God is saying, I have you. When It's just that picture that comes to my mind of a child that's looking at the slide and say, that looks really fun. Climbs up the slide and then is a little nervous because it's quite high and it's quite far to the bottom. But mom or dad is at the bottom saying, come on, I'm here. You don't need to worry about anything. I can see you. I know where you are. And when you, when you trust to slide down, I've got you. I'm not going to let any harm come to you. And if we're confident, if that child has confidence that his parent is able to protect, how much more confidence should we have in God? I mean, there's times where your parent said, I've got you, and they didn't quite have you, did they? Um, but God, he does have us. He does not drop us. He is not... Uh, you know, overwhelmed. He doesn't lose his balance and tip over because he's getting a little old. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We've all been let down by people that we've trusted. We've all experienced that when our expectations were dashed. 
but we have a strong foundation in Christ that will never be put to shame. He's got us. So in Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1, we read, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. There's this conversation happening between the prophet and this one who's personified as a person who's been treading out the grapes in Edom or Esau. And as you would tread out the vintage, you would have the grapes in a vat, and you would walk upon them with bare feet, and the, the juice would get onto your robes. It would, it would spatter your garments. And so he says, who is this coming out of Edom? And uh, this phrase, the treading out the vintage, is, is a picture of God's judgment. And uh, we see that in Revelation as well. We'll get to that. But it's not just a farm worker who's come out of Edom. It is the glorious one who is great in strength, it says in the passage. It's none other than God, the God of Israel. He's righteous and mighty to save. He would repay the Edomites for their sins against his people. Esau and Jacob, um, because they were brothers, we might think that their descendants were cool with each other, that they actually had good relations, but that was far from the case. Um, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were cheering on the Babylonians, and they rejoiced in the destruction. The psalmist recalled this to mind in Psalm 137.7. He says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. So when the enemies came upon Jerusalem, they were like, Take them down, wipe them off the face of the earth. And, and the psalmist says, don't forget about that, God. Now, God hadn't forgot about that. If you read the book of Obadiah, it's a prophecy against Edom. And in that passage, it says in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, speaking to the Edomites, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should have not stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So we have this picture. Jerusalem, the day had come that it would be sacked. God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, to go and take, to, to judge Israel, to chasten his people so they might return to him and, and leave aside their idolatry. And the Edomites, it's like they pulled up a lawn chair and they watched it all go down. And when they saw people leave, they're like, hey, hey, there's a guy over there. There he is. He's trying to get away. And so the, then the, uh, the Babylonians would go after him. And then the people who were trying to blend in, you know, kind of to fit in, they're like, oh, this guy, he's, he's actually from Jerusalem. And they were turning them over to their enemies. And then when all it was done, they went in and plundered them as well. 
And he says, you should not have done that. You shouldn't have looked upon their affliction in the day of their calamity. You shouldn't have rejoiced in the day of their calamity. And so the way that you've treated them is the way that you will be treated. And so judgment for Edom would come. They walked contrary to Proverbs 24, 17 that says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. This is normal for us. We have an insatiable appetite for what I'll call poetic justice. We really like it when there's that big, talking, tough guy before he gets into the ring, and he gets knocked, he's a professional, and he gets knocked out by a part-time electrician. And we're like, see, that's what happens to people who shoot off their mouth like that. And we kind of right on. Like, there's something in us that's a bit satisfied when we see this happen. You know, if if uh, your team may be a terrible team in the competition, but if your rival loses, oh, well, it's almost as good as a win. You can, uh, you know, have fun at their expense. Like, haha, where's all the talk now, guys? And, and uh, you have nothing to brag about, but you'll brag about them losing. That's just, that's natural for us. We enjoy the fall of our enemy, the person that's opposed us or hated us or worked against us. When something happens to them, we do naturally rejoice in that. And we seek to capitalize on their losses. There's times where we have silently looked on when we should have said something, we should have done something to help. So let's let's take this to heart, that we are not like the Edomites who are rejoicing in the misfortune of others or in the the pain or the trouble where we feel like, see, you're getting what you deserve. Have we received what we have deserved? Have Have we been judged according to all of our sin before God? No, he's been gracious to us, hasn't he? So we do reap what we sow. Uh, that is true. But let's ensure that we're not like the Edomites. Now, Jesus in Revelation 19.13, he's described as being clothed in a robe that's been dipped in blood. He's going to take vengeance on his enemies. Everyone who has hated him, everyone who has uh, opposed his rule, he will take vengeance on those who have harmed his people. And in the Isaiah passage, Going back to it, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So God was responsible for the fall of Edom, even as the Edomites were guilty of sin. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He did not delight to destroy those enemies, but he delighted in saving his people, in taking vengeance for their sake and for the holiness of his name. He is zealous to vindicate his redeemed. That's how our God moves. And he doesn't need any help from us or anyone else to accomplish that. He says, I was, tre- I was treading the, wa- the wine press alone, like I did it by myself. I didn't need anyone's help to do that. God doesn't need your help to defeat your enemy. He's able to do it all by himself. God gives us so much consolation when we're attacked, when we feel betrayed, when we feel like people should have stood up for us, people who should have had our back didn't. We can know that God will respond in his time and in his way. He treads the wine press alone. 
Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. God saw there was no one to help his people in the day of their calamity, so he stood up for them. If we cannot save ourselves, how can we manage to save others? I think about the man that goes down into a vessel or a tank and there's a lack of oxygen and he passes out. Someone else sees him down there and they try to rescue him. Can the man who's unconscious help those who are unconscious chasing him, trying to help him? No, he can't help himself and he can't help those who are trying to help him. But see, God is able. He doesn't need to be saved like a person does. But notice what it says. It says, God brought salvation for me. Because God saw his people as an extension of himself. He doesn't need salvation. In him is salvation. And that's a lovely truth for those redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He brings forth salvation. When there's no one to help you, when there's no hope in the world for you, he will be your hope. He will be your salvation if we'll repent and trust in him. Instead of rejoicing in the fall of our enemies, we should delight and rejoice in the power of our God who saves us. Like instead of dancing on the graves of our enemies, let's turn our gaze to Christ and praise him for his goodness to us, even in the midst of the trial. Because his word is unbreakable. He will do it. When you look around and it seems like there's no one to help, no one's able to help, no one even really knows how to help, know that God is your helper. We make the mistake often of trying to seek comfort and security and peace primarily from people or from our circumstances. Those, the, that's the way that we, we typically will look for something out there or someone to support us or to help us in a tough time. Now, for a moment, think about a person that if you could just think of all the people in your life and there's like one person that you would trust and you said, you know, that is a person that I could look to in a tough time. I know they would be there to help me. Maybe they couldn't, you know, save me from the situation, but I could look to them for hope or help. You know, the hope or help that person that you trust the most, God is able to help you much more than that. And he's much more trustworthy than that person. And so if you would receive comfort in one person who has your back, you know, if one person had my back, I could be okay right now. Know that you, we should trust God more than that. He is worthy to be trusted. God told his people in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our best supporters, they can be afraid. Things can be beyond their ability to help. They can't always be with you. Sometimes you wouldn't want them to always be with you. Things happen in our lives that's beyond the strength of anyone to endure. Much less uphold someone else while you're going through it. When you're disheartened and there seems to be a lack of support from others, 
Know that God has promised to be with you if you seek him. What does he say? I will give you strength. I will help you. I will be with you. I will uphold you. I will render your enemies incapable of fighting. That's when he said, I'll make them drunk in my fury. You know, a drunk man is not able to, uh, his wits are not about him. His coordination is off. No, no ability to fight. And God will give the victory. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. We see in verse 7 the prophet extolling the loving kindnesses of the Lord. The first time I read that, I read loving kindness, but then when I read it again, I'm like, whoa, loving kindnesses, plural. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew, which is chesed, and it's the closest word in the Old Testament to charis, uh, or grace, in the New Testament, where it carries with it the idea of love and loyalty based upon covenant, mercy, and enduring faithfulness. That it's not based upon a mood or a feeling, uh, but God bestows it freely. He gives it without being earned, and it's good and merciful, and it's plentiful. Like he says, the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Like, it's beyond reckoning, really. And this loving kindness is what Jesus has displayed when he established the new covenant on the cross by shedding his own blood. He did this freely without being under any legal obligation to save anyone. He demonstrated his love for people who betrayed him, people who hated him. God's never been under a legal obligation to save sinners. But out of his goodness, out of his loving kindness, he's made a way for us. It's due to God's goodness, not our worthiness, that he laid down his life. The one who he, he really deserved to live forever, untouched by sin, he breathed his last on Calvary. Like he didn't have to die in one sense. But Jesus laid down his will before the Father. And that was what the Father directed him to. And he didn't do it just to prove something about himself, which he did show us himself, his love for us, but to adopt us as unworthy children as his own. And to say, I want you to live with me forever. I want you to know me. I want you to be able to receive of my loving kindness. The passage reads, Surely these are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. God didn't save us because it was a profitable business investment. Like he's like, well, I'll get a good return on my labor. But because in us, he would place his spirit and he will make us like him.
But lima, the commentator, he says of this Hebrew word lie. Because I was like, well, God's people won't lie. Well, we've all lied, haven't we? But he says this word here, it means it was applied to a fountain, pit, or brook that contained no water anymore and so disappointed the thirsty person and to a fruit tree that no longer yielded any fruit. With this one significant word, the Lord meant to say that his people will not deceive and disappoint him. So if you were thirsty and there was a place where you knew that you could find water and you would go to that, you wouldn't want to be disappointed by finding that it was dry. And same thing with fruitfulness. Now, when God, when we are born again and the Spirit of God comes within us, it's like a fountain of living water that flows from us. He is the source, right? So there is this refreshment that's not going to run out. It's not going to dry up one day. He's not going to be disappointed because he's the one supplying that living water and fruitfulness, right? The fruit of the Spirit comes through our life. He comes in. He changes our hearts and our minds. We are able to make decisions that honor him, and then we become fruitful. And he says those who are fruitful, he prunes so that they can be more fruitful. So because we have been born again and made new and his Spirit is now within us, we will not be dry. Uh, Now, we can get dry because we stop seeking the Lord to sustain us. But his source, he's like, I'm never going to be disappointed in them. I love that. God's not disappointed in you. Because he's purchased you. He chose to do it. He wanted it. And he wants you. He will transform us into his likeness. Speaking of Israel in verse 9, it says, In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved him. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. When the whip of the taskmaster was laid upon a Hebrew slave in Egypt, God felt it. When David was slandered and pursued by King Saul, though he had done nothing to deserve death, God knew all about it. When there was a mother sobbing over the loss of her child during the Babylonian siege, God experienced that. He heard her tears. He he saw her tears. He heard her cries. He knew what had gone on. And these were people who felt like, where's God? Where's God right now? When they were in bondage, it says, uh, I read this morning, that the cries of the people came up before the Lord for for years and years, 400 plus years in in, uh, Egypt. David, 10 years approximately, fleeing King Saul. He's like, Lord, there's so many that are multiplied against me. And then God's people with the Babylonian siege and saying, like, how could you let this happen, God? I thought you were all powerful. I thought you loved us. But look at what's happening. In all their affliction, it says, God was afflicted. He chose to take their affliction upon himself. And God was able to carry his people regardless of the burdens they carried. What an encouragement for us. And he says, be casting those cares upon me. He's able to bear them. Only God who loves and pities his people can redeem them. That's why we know that this is talking about the Lord. 
It says that God's presence, they were led by that pillar, a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Now, Paul makes this connection to Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So when God delivered his people, the angel of his presence, or literally the angel of his face, was with God's people to protect them. He guided them in that pillar of cloud or fire by night, and he protected them. And so Christ was there, God was there, protecting his people, guiding them, providing for them the water out of the rock, the manna that fell from heaven. He gave them everything they needed. But despite God's loving kindnesses toward his people, it says they didn't remain faithful to him. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he turned them. He he was not their enemy, but he became as their enemy. He opposed their departure from him. His love for them would not allow them to rebel without a fight. He was going to do everything in his power to cause them to see his love and his provision. In other scriptures, he compares Israel to his lovely wife that he chose, that he provided clothes for her and ornaments, and he gave her delicious food and a place to stay. Uh, But she used her beauty to play the harlot, and the ornaments he gave her, she fashioned them into idols, or she used them to try to buy other lovers to get them to sleep with her. And her choices caused her to be the victim of abusive relationships. But even still, he pursued her, and he spoke kindly to her, and he says, come back to me. I'm the one who was the source of everything in your life. And God allowed other nations to attack, ultimately to destroy Jerusalem and Samaria. And they learned hard lessons through war and starvation and famine. But unlike the Babylonians or other nations that just wanted the the Israelites wiped off the face of the earth, God sought to restore them. He chastened them. He he loved them. He didn't hate them. Now sometimes that love, it, it can feel like hate when we're not getting our way. But God's motive was to discipline his people so they would come back. He wasn't going to make it easy on his uh, wandering bride to go from lover to lover. He was going to restrain her in some way. And then he gave her over to those desires. And there was, a, there was pain. There was trouble. But God had not forgotten them. God still loved them. God would bring them back to himself. Now, we, as Christians, we can rebel against the Lord. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, and God will chasten us. His his ways don't change. He will still be faithful to us, and he will permit us to walk outside of his will or to go outside his protective covering, and he'll let the devil chew us up and spit us out and use and abuse us until we come to our senses uh, that we need him and we need his salvation. Isaiah 63, verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? 
who led them by the right hand of Moses, with his glorious arm dividing the water before them, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. You have the people in Babylon, right? They have heard of the great salvation of the Lord. They've heard all these stories that have been handed down through the generations of the Egyptian, uh, the time of bondage in Egypt, and how God brought them out with a mighty hand, how he parted the Red Sea, and how for 40 years they went through the wilderness, and he, his spirit was with them, and he provided for them, and the walls of Jericho fell, and, and you go on and on, the giants in the land, God drove them out, and time and time again, God protected his people during the Passover, and they would remember the, the great deliverances of God. They remembered the songs of Moses and Miriam and his great salvation. But they wondered what had happened to the God we've heard so much about. Like, I thought God was mighty. I thought he just, you know, he opens doors and he makes the captives go free. And man, it's been many years now and we're still like, where is God? What's going on? In the old days, God's presence was among his people. Where is he now? Where's God's deliverance in Babylon? They were scratching their heads. Like, what about the plagues? Like, God plagued the Egyptians. Why isn't he plaguing the Babylonians? Why aren't we being saved? I thought we were God's people and that he cared about us. There is a tendency in us to entertain nostalgic and romantic notions about the days gone by that were better than the days we're experiencing now. I think if we're struggling and suffering, that's likely that we'll do that. We might, our minds might drift back to days gone by or perhaps days we've just heard about. We haven't really experienced it. But the truth was God's presence was with his people. He knew what they were enduring. He was still the same God, mighty to save. It was God's people that had changed. God hadn't changed. His promises were still true. Judges 2, it says, After that generation who, who first entered Canaan and God drove out the enemies before them, there arose a new generation that did not know the Lord. They didn't know God. They heard about everything God did, but they didn't actually know him. And God, it says, delivered them into the hands of their enemies. He would raise up a judge and deliver them. Now, perhaps your thoughts can be like those of the Israelites who, who ask those questions, like, where is God now? Does he see what's going on in the world? Does he see what's going on in my own life? Doesn't he see that these people are getting away with it? They're getting away with these terrible things they're saying against me. And, and we feel a bit of outrage that God should be doing something and he should be doing it now. You know, I've heard God's worked great things for other people. I would really appreciate if he'd do something for me. Why doesn't God do something for me? With an all-powerful, all-knowing God, you might think that, well, come on, speed it up. Don't you see? Haven't I suffered enough? 
Haven't I struggled enough? How much more do I have to struggle before you get your act together and do something? Do we even, do we say that? Uh, yeah, we, we do. We do say that. Like, with one stroke, God, you can do it. Let me exhort you. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 in verse 12 through 13. And don't miss that first word. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. It says, Beloved, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. God did lead his people like a horse through open country. He did open the doors. He set the captives free. It was 400 years plus in Egypt. It would be 70 years in Babylon. And it's like, well, I, I hope my deliverance doesn't come 70 years from now. I don't know if I'll be around anymore. But notice, beloved, don't think it's strange when you're going through the trial. Rejoice to the extent that when we suffer, we partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. God's people lacked nothing in the wilderness. They didn't, I mean, there was no store. There was nothing like, well, what are we going to do? If they had, if they had known how long it was going to be, man. They would have worried constantly. But God, day by day, supplied their needs. His presence provided them rest, guidance, protection, provision, and it made his name glorious. Instead of looking at the problem or the amount of time we've struggled with the problem or the pain that we've endured, we need to look to the Lord, the one who gives us the rest and the guidance and the provision that we need. So back to Isaiah 63, 15. It says, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. The people identified as Israelites. They say, hey, Abraham, he wouldn't know our names. He wouldn't know us personally, but he's our father. And, and Isaac as well, the ones you made covenants with, we are their descendants. They wouldn't know us from anyone, but we know them and we, we know you. They felt like they had been forgotten by God. They're like, hello, we're here. The ones to whom you've made your promises. They felt God had forgotten them, but the reality was they had forgotten God. They were right about God's mercies and his yearning for them and wanting to have a blessing upon their life. There was a time in Judges chapter 10, 
uh, verses 14 through 16, he said to them, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So God saw they were miserable. He saw they were struggling. They were in terrible pain. And it says his soul was grieved for them. Their affliction he had taken upon himself. They came to a place where they finally cried out to God. They had all these gods. They had all these idols. But they said, God, what, uh, it said, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Are you willing honestly to say that to God? I have sinned. Do to me whatever seems best to you. Will you put your weight on those everlasting arms? All of it. Trusting God's strength, God's wisdom, your Redeemer from everlasting. So there's a big difference between saying you'll do this and actually doing it. Huge difference. Like we can talk about or watch videos of, of bungee jumping. And we can discuss uh, how, how, you know, the wisdom of perhaps tying elastic bands to your ankles and, and, and jumping off of a bridge. But it's very different when you're standing on the bridge and those little elastic bands around your ankles and it's time for you to jump head first. There's a lot of people who are willing to talk about skydiving, but who will not, under any circumstances, jump out of a plane at 4,000 meters. They're not going to do it. But they could tell you about uh, the, the kind of parachutes that are good. And, and, oh, yeah, I believe that parachute could help somebody. I'm not going up there, right? So we talk about trusting God. Are you willing to take that leap and to say, God, whatever is best, you do. Whatever seems best to you, God, you do it. I'm not putting any time restraints on you. I'm not telling you what I think would be the right thing for you to do now. Whatever seems best to you, do it. And then put away the idols and trust him. If we're not faithful to trust him in little things, how can we commit big things to him? Do we trust God and give him such freedom in our lives that, Lord, I will let you do what's best in my life, complete freedom to do anything you want, and I won't resent you for the time you take or the path you choose. I trust you. After Jesus laid down his will in Gethsemane before the Father, it meant dying on Calvary. He didn't deserve that. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And it's like, we don't know how long the current trial that you may be going through, that fiery trial, it could last, well, likely it's going to be between three days or 400 years. I mean, it's going to be somewhere in there, right? I mean, we'd all like our trials to be over in a day or in a moment. But probably it's going to fall within that space of time. Are you willing to give God all the time of your life that he wants to accomplish? Because he knows where you've been, where you are, and he's taking you someplace in particular. He has a plan. He is in control. And he has a glorious future for you, forever in his presence. 
Isaiah 63, 17. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. When Isaiah penned these words, the temple was still standing. It had not fallen. The Babylonians had not come yet. This is all spoken prophetically of what would happen in the future. And much of Isaiah is so specific that people have surmised that it must have been written after the fact because it's so precise. But we know that Isaiah did write this. Um, And it happened as God said, people refused to repent for their idolatries. They rebelled. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And the vast majority of those who survived were taken into captivity for 70 years. And it seemed like Israel was just like any other nation that had been uh, destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, just like the Edomites or the other ites that were out there. Now, one thing I appreciate about the scripture is it does not sanitize or attempt to hide how God's people felt in the midst of their affliction. When things were bad, if you read the Psalms sometime, you read the book of Job, you see people, they... People who fear God and love God, they still question God. There can be tough times that make us think, why does God allow such suffering? Where is God right now? Why isn't he doing something to help? Doesn't he see what's going on? Now, these questions, they're not theologically sound that are being asked in this passage. Of course, God is not the one who causes anyone to stray from their ways. But they're saying, hey, God, you're in control of everything, and we're so far from you. Why'd you allow us to do that? Why'd you let us go so far? God hadn't hardened their hearts at the beginning. They hardened their hearts against his word. They trampled his word under their feet, and so he allowed the enemy to trample down the sanctuary. He says, you guys have trampled my word. So he did, he was not responsible for their sinful condition or their distance from God. They had chosen that. They had created exceptions and caveats to accommodate sin, and God allowed the destruction of Jerusalem to purify people unto himself. It didn't matter between Edom, Israel, Babylon. They all would reap what they had sown. So to sum up, fellow Christians, God has much more than just your back in mind. It's not about just having your back as you go through this life. He has a plan in the things he allows, even things that are hard and devastating, that seem like there's no remedy. And really, there isn't a remedy on this planet except from God that comes through Jesus Christ. His plans are for your good. He is in control. Will you lay down your will for your life before him today? Will you say, God, whatever seems best to you, do it. And I will do my part to walk in obedience to your word, to the things that you're telling me. We we want God's presence, right? But if you think back to the very first time that there was sin, Adam and Eve were hiding from God's presence. 
Like they wanted God's presence, but they couldn't abide in God's presence. They were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And, and he's like, hey, Adam, where are you? Where are you out there? He knew where he was. We're often like the Israelites. We can be in bondage and we say, where is God? Why isn't he doing something? If you could turn to Nahum, chapter 1, 5 through 7. May the Lord help us to, to draw near to him in faith and to understand his greatness and worthiness to be worshipped and honored and praised. Nahum chapter 1, 5 through 7. It reads, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Interesting mix, isn't it? Like the earth, it gets it. It actually trembles before God. The mountains melt, the hills melt in his presence. And yet we can have a heart like flint. We don't quake before the God of all the universe. We don't seem to feel any need to, to examine ourselves. How is it that the hills can melt and I can be like a stone? How can it be? But may God remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that can feel, that will rejoice in his presence. Because it says in verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. That trial that you're going through, is it causing you to pursue the Lord and to seek his presence? or to run away from him because you're afraid of what's going to happen. May we run to him. May we see that he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And he knows all who trust in him. You know, when you hear of the earthquake and there's a building that's fallen, like I've seen it on the news, not too many earthquakes in Australia. But when there is an earthquake and and they always send in like uh, the, the first responders and the dogs and, and people with equipment to find if there's anyone there. And they're not really sure. They, they figure there's people there, but they don't know. It's not like everyone checks a register when they go into any particular building. But God knows who's in there. And God is able to save us when we feel like our world has crashed down upon us. And we're like, does anybody see? Can anyone hear me? You know, I, I, I need a drink. I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm, I'm hoarse from shouting. Is anyone here? God, he knows. He's got you. He says, I have you. Trust me. Let's go to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've given us this word today. Lord, may we take it to heart that you are trustworthy that you are good, you are a stronghold in the day of trouble, and that we can wait on the Lord and be strengthened. Teach us how to do that, Lord. And if our hearts have become hard, we pray, Lord, that 
we would be given soft hearts from you, that you would just pierce us with your word today so that we might recognize how good you are, how glorious and awesome. And if there have been doubts that we've given place to in our lives, if there are fears that we have allowed to control us, Lord, we repent of those. And we ask that you would uh, cause us to be like the those desperate people of yours who said, Lord, save us. Whatever seems good to you, do it. And Lord, whatever you tell us to do, may we do it. Thank you that you are worthy and you are awesome. You are mighty to save and that you love us. You won't forget us. You do much more than just have our back, but you hold us and you will for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.